Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christogenia Saturdays. Today is Saturday, June 24th, 2017. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. Tonight we are, of course, still in southeast Wisconsin, and Melissa and I should be headed back towards Dixieland tomorrow through Missouri and Arkansas. Melissa can't wait to make the trip. (laughs) We're going to present Neighbors and Strangers this evening and also discuss Ted Wheeland and other supposed Christian identity pastors who cannot tell them apart. Neighbors and Strangers are just going to be extracts from some of my podcast notes, some of my Bible commentaries on a topic I thought it would be neat to get them into one place and to have a reference that I could point people to on these two topics in the future. These questions are constantly coming up about neighbors and strangers in Scripture. But the first thing I would like to discuss tonight are symbols and words. Recently in our travels, we had a photograph that we posted in social media. And some of our friends rather jestingly made a hand gesture, which consisted of joining thumb and forefinger to form a circle, while holding the other three fingers of the hand in an upright position. We thought the gesture was rather harmless, but other friends who saw the photo took exception, claiming that the gesture was some sort of secret Illuminati or Kabbalistic sign connected to some sort of Babylonian mysticism. Now, I know that these people are sincere, but sometimes we simply see too much in certain symbols and signals, attributing our own or even someone else's meanings to these things every time we see them, meanings which the person who may use the symbol at any given time certainly may not intend. For example, even today, white nationalists and identity Christians use the swastika in a way which is somewhat removed from the meaning that National Socialist Germany had employed the symbol. And in turn, the Germans use the swastika to signify something very different than either the Buddhists or the Aztecs, or the ancient Greeks, or Thracians had used it. So the meanings of symbols, and even words, may change in a given context. And we must examine that context before we take offense to those who would use a symbol or a word. For instance, this hand gesture that our friends used, at one time simply meant, okay. It was a gesture used in a noisy environment or over a distance of space when the expected recipient of the gesture was out of earshot to indicate that certain things were going well or proceeding as expected. But other friends in Western Canada informed us that to them the same signal was used as an obscene gesture to indicate that the expected recipient was something of an asshole. 
And of course, even in that description, the word asshole is to be understood figuratively and not literally to describe an irritating or contemptible person. Our friends use the gesture in the photograph we speak of in an entirely different way. And to at least some identity Christians, it has come to bear much the same meaning that the Celtic cross now bears to white nationalists, for which the traditional Christian symbol is now virtually banned from social media platforms such as Facebook. And with that we see that to some people today, even the Celtic cross has a meaning which the original symbol never bore as it has now been associated with white supremacy and so-called hate groups. So when a symbol is used, every time a symbol is used, the context must be inspected. When a word is used, the context must be inspected. And it doesn't always mean what it appears to mean. Not every time the swastika is used, should we think of Adolf Hitler, not every time this silly little hand signal that was used in his photograph was used, does it mean something nefarious connected to ancient mysticism? That's silly to think that, especially when that particular symbol has been used in, in the in the public to mean in, in, in modern pop culture to mean something totally different. And, and most people should recognize that. Now for our next topic and the discussion of neighbors and strangers. The terms neighbor and stranger are, are among the most abused words found in the Holy Bible. The abuse is possible because these English words are void of the richer meanings of the Hebrew or Greek words from which they are translated. But of course, most all denominational Christians are unaware that the Hebrew or Greek terms have meanings which are far more specific than the English words which are typically employed to represent them. We have discussed these words in the past in certain of our biblical commentaries, and now we will sort of summarize those discussions here. We will begin with the term neighbor. The following explanation is adapted from our presentations of Acts chapter 7, given here in June of 2013, and Romans chapter 13, given here in August of 2014. It is fully evident that in this day and age, most Christians are locked in the paradigms of this world, and they interpret their Bibles through those paradigms. But the patterns of thought were far different in ancient times, and it is there that we should endeavor to interpret biblical language in the context of the time that the words were used as best as we can determine how the words were originally employed. Christian attitudes concerning race and righteousness have been artificially manufactured by the international elite 
which consists mostly of Jews, who control the media and the publishing industries for over 200 years now. The concept of political correctness, which holds sway over their minds, is an invention of those global elites, these mostly Jewish masters who rule over them, that they may retain that rule without difficulty. So as we often like to say, the result is that today, Christians worship Jews instead of Jesus. Now we are going to read part of an account related in Acts chapter 7 of the life of Moses. These are the words of the martyr Stephen. And we are doing this in order to illustrate the meaning of the word neighbor. And Stephen said, from Acts chapter 7, verse 23, And as forty years' time were completed by him, referring to Moses, he put up in his heart to visit his brethren, the sons of Israel. And seeing one, seeing one of those sons of Israel, being done wrong, he defended him, and made an avenging for him who was being subdued, smiting the Egyptian. And he expected the brethren to understand that Yahweh, through his hand, meaning the hand of Moses, gives deliverance to them, but they did not understand. Then the next day, he appeared to those who were fighting, and he reconciled them in peace, saying, Men, you are brothers. For what reason do you do wrong to one another? But he doing wrong to him near to him, referring to the Israelite who was the aggressor against his brother Israelite, rejected him, saying, Who appointed you ruler and judge over us? Do you not desire to kill me in the manner that you killed the Egyptian yesterday? And here we see that an Israelite in bondage would despise another Israelite who had delivered him, meaning Moses, rather than be grateful for any relief he was granted from his Egyptian oppressor. Our people are a little different today. Verses 27 and 28 of Acts chapter 7 quote from Exodus 2.14 As it is today, it was then also that the righteousness of the children of Israel was after the reckoning of man rather than of God. And this man expressed more concern for his dead oppressor than he had for the men of his own race. Of course, this man had an agenda, as he did not want to cease from oppressing his own brother, which Moses tried to prevent him from doing. According to Stephen, who told this account, Moses was already somehow cognizant of his mission to free his people Israel. However, the people having rejected him, Moses would have to flee from Egypt, and it would be another forty years before he fulfilled his mission. Our people have the same attitude today, where because the churches teach them lies, when they are informed of their sins, they respond 
Who appointed you ruler and judge over us? The phrase in this passage, but he doing wrong, referring to the Israelite aggressor, to he near to him, referring to the Israelite being fought with by his kinsmen, rejected him, meaning the admonishment of Moses, is a little difficult to read as we have translated it in the Christogenia New Testament. It would be easier to read if it were rendered, but he doing wrong to his neighbor rejected him. But translating our version, we avoided the word neighbor because it is so poorly understood and we opted instead for a literal interpretation of the original Greek phrase. In Romans chapter 13 and verse 9, Paul quotes from the Ten Commandments where they say, You shall love him near to you as yourself, or love thy neighbor as thyself. He's quoting from the Ten Commandments, and then he quotes another scripture, I'm sorry, which says that you shall love him near to you as yourself, or love thy neighbor as thyself. And that's a commandment which may be found only at Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18, which reads, Thou shalt not avenge, nor bear any grudge against the children of thy people, but thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. I am Yahweh. In that passage alone, where the command first appears in Scripture, we see that the concept of neighbor must be limited to the scope of the reference to the children of thy people, or the people of one's own race. Since the children of Israel were to be a separate people, in the eyes of God, nobody else but a racial kinsman could possibly be one's neighbor. The word neighbor in Leviticus 19.18 refers to any one of the children of thy people and to nobody else. The word which is usually translated as neighbor from Greek in the New Testament is frequently the or, or is usually the adverb placeion and I'm sorry I'm editing my notes as I continue with this placeion is the neuter form of placios which means literally near or close to and when placeion is accompanied with the definite article, it is a substantive, which means that it functions as a noun. Now the word placios itself is a derivative of another adverb, pelis, which also means hard, by, or near, or close to. And either of these three words, placeon, placios, or pelis, used as a substantive, meaning when it's used as a noun, means one who is near, or, as the King James Version has it, a neighbor. But by themselves, these words do not readily distinguish between nearness in relationship 
or nearness in geographical proximity. Because of the way that the English word neighbor is perceived in modern times, understood only in a geographical sense, I have refrained from using that word in my translations. However, the corresponding Hebrew word from which these words were often translated in the Septuagint certainly does bear a distinction, and so does the context of Scripture on occasions where the word placeon, or neighbor, is found. First, in secular Greek, there are other words used by authors who were contemporary to the New Testament period, and which also appear in the New Testament, which are often translated as neighbor. These words are gaiton. A gaiton is explicitly one of the same land. It comes from the word geis, which means land. And therefore, in that sense, it refers to a neighbor. And it's found in Luke chapter 14, Luke chapter 15, and John chapter 9. And then there's the word perioikos, which simply means to refer to those dwelling around and as a substantive, hoi perioikoi, means neighbors, those who are dwelling around. And that word is found in the New Testament only in Luke chapter 1, verse 58. Both of these words, gaiton and perioikos, have an explicitly geographical meaning, since they refer to physical proximity. But Placeon describes only one who is close or near without any explicit inference of location. It can surely be demonstrated from historical sources such as Strabo of Cappadocia that in Palestine and throughout the Oikumene the oikumene being the word used to describe the physical Greco-Roman world. One's neighbor was most often, and was expected to be, of one's own tribe. That this is the true meaning of tonplacion in the New Testament is evident in other ways. Besides the use of those other words, gaiton or perioikos, Strabo had marveled that in Egypt there were cities that were inhabited by people from different tribes. Therefore, we see that diverse cities were not the norm in other countries. Here, in Acts chapter 7, verse 27, an account of the events recorded in the Exodus in chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. One Israelite is referred to as the neighbor, or the placeon, as the the King James Version translates it, neighbor in that phrase, in, in in that verse. One Israelite is referred to as the placeon, or neighbor, in relation to another Israelite, but certainly not in that Moses, as it is evidenced in the Exodus account, could not have known that these men lived 
in close geographic proximity to one another, as we currently understand the meaning of the term neighbor. There is absolutely no indication of that. Moses could only have known that the men had a tribal relationship. Now, some people may think this is conjectural, but it certainly is the circumstance, and therefore it must be considered. Another example of the use of this word neighbor or placion is found in Matthew 5.43, where Yahshua Christ is credited with the words, Thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. And yes, like last night, we have a choo-choo train in the background here in Wisconsin. (laughs) I apologize for not visiting people further away from the tracks. (laughs) That's funny. Our friends can't help it. They have a really beautiful place here. I would want to live here also, except that Wisconsin has five or six months of winter every year. And we don't need that. Where Christ said, Thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. What meaning would the saying have if one's enemy lived in the house next door, as is so often the case in modern society? So therefore it should be evident that Tonplacion is one near in relation to another, but not necessarily in the geographical sense. Rather, one near in relationship is how the word should be understood in the Bible. The Hebrew word in the original text of the command that thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself, which is found in Leviticus 19.18, is Strong's number 7453, Rea, which is an associate, more or less close, as Strong's defines it. And Strong lists the King James Version translations of the word, Rea, as brother, companion, fellow, friend, husband, lover, or neighbor, and sometimes as other or another, depending on the context. And therefore, it should certainly be evident that tonplacion, the Greek phrase used in the Septuagint and in the New Testament to translate this Hebrew word, is not merely someone who lives nearby. Rather, it is someone close to you or close to one in a relationship sense. In turn, the root word of rea, the word from which it is derived, is a word said to be, it, it is, rea is a word said to be derived from, by Strong, the word found in Strong's Concordance at number 7462, which is also pronounced rea, but it's spelled slightly differently. And rea in 7462 is defined by Strong as a primitive root, which means to tend a flock or to pass.
pasture it. If it's used intransitively, it can mean to graze, literally or figuratively. And in the sense of tending a flock, it can mean to rule. By extension, it can mean to associate, to associate with as with a friend. And so it is apparent that if one is a member of the flock, then one's placeion or neighbor can only be a fellow sheep. This leads us right back to the original appearance of the word in this context in Leviticus chapter 19 verse 18 where we have seen that the word neighbor can only refer back to one of the children of thy people according to the commandment as it is given. So a neighbor is someone of the same flock. And if someone is of your flock, he is a neighbor. But if someone is not of your flock, he cannot ever be a neighbor. A wolf who moves into the sheepfold can never be a sheep. And therefore, he can never be a neighbor to the sheep. Men do not gather grapes from thorns, nor figs from thistles. We cannot imagine the word of God to be insisting that a wolf or a goat can be a neighbor to a sheep. And goats are often grazed on the same pasture. Next we are going to discuss the word stranger. And we will use several sources from both Clifton Emmeheiser's writings and my own in order to do this. A person of another race or tribe who was living among the children of Israel was never considered a neighbor in the Old Testament. Rather, it was considered a sojourner or a stranger. The references to sojourners or strangers among the children of Israel, which are in the law, also proves that aliens among the children of the people, among the people, were not considered neighbors. Or there would not have been a separate designation of sojourner or stranger for such people. Likewise, white Christians today should see aliens living among them as sojourners or strangers, but never as neighbors. However, in Hebrew, there were a handful of different words for stranger, and each of them had a different meaning. Likewise, in Greek, there were mainly two words which referred to strangers, and they had different meanings. In part 18 of our commentary on Hebrews, given here this past January, we said the following in relation to Hebrews chapter 13, verse 2, where it says, Do not be forgetful of hospitality, for in this some being unaware have been hospitable to messengers. And we wrote, there are several words in the Hebrew language of the Bible which were all translated into English as stranger. Among these are Ger, Strong's number 1616, Zur, Strong's number 2114, Magor, Strong's number 4033, Nekar, or Nakri, Strong's numbers 52, 36, and 37, or Toshab, 
which is Strong's number 8453, and really refers to a sojourner, but sometimes the King James Version translated it as stranger. And they all had different nuances of meaning. And of course, a sojourner can be anyone of any race. Be Among the children of Israel could be considered a sojourner. But if they were considered a, a, a stranger, they may be a Gair or a Zur or a Nikar or a Nakri or, or a Magor. And what word is applied to them tells us something of how and why they were under the, among the children of Israel. These words all had different nuances of meaning. One must also be careful, as it is apparent, that the usage of these words was not entirely consistent throughout the Old Testament. And this is important to understand, because there are some passages later on in Chronicles and, and Kings in the book of, books of Ezra and Nehemiah, which may seem to conflict with our, our assertions concerning these words as they were used by Moses. And that's because the colloquial use of words in the books which were written a thousand years after Moses is not necessarily the same as it was in the time when the Pentateuch was written. But in the writings of the Law of Moses, the word ger, which signifies an acceptable sort of stranger, seems to be closest to the meaning of the Greek word xenos. Here in Hebrews, we must discern that Paul distinguishes the Xenos, who is deserving of hospitality, from the aliens who were turned to flight, which he mentions in chapter 11 of the epistle, where he applauded the Old Testament children of Israel who turned to flight the armies of the aliens through their faith and which he distinguishes from the bastards whom he describes in chapter 12 of the epistle and whom he clearly despises. There are also several different Greek words translated as stranger which do not have the meaning which Xenos has. Then speaking of the word of hospitality in that same place in our comments on Hebrews chapter 11, we continued and we said, the Greek word, the Greek word for hospitality in Hebrews, I'm sorry, Hebrews chapter 13, verse 2. The Greek word is philoxenia, which according to Liddell and Scott means hospitality. The word comes from philos, which may be dear or loved in this case or friendly, in this case, I'm sorry, and zenos, which is often translated as stranger. So, philoxenia is someone who loves strangers. But a stranger was not merely an alien, and in a large ninth edition of their Greek-English lexicon, Liddell and Scott give the primary definition as of zenos as a guest friend, applied to persons and states 
bound by a treaty or tie of hospitality. And this is the way in which Paul's words here must be interpreted. We cannot accept an interpretation which advances the idea that Paul is contradicting his own earlier statements concerning bastards, the fornication of Esau, and the armies of the aliens. In Hebrews chapters 11 and 12, when Paul gets to Hebrews 13 too, he is not contradicting himself. So aliens, according to Paul of Tarsus, really have no place among us, as he lauded the fact that the ancient children of Israel had turned to flight the armies of the aliens. Neither do bastards have any place among us, as Paul certainly attested to the acceptance of sons and the rejection of bastards. But since the Hebrew words for stranger were sometimes used colloquially in a different manner in the later books of Scripture than they were in the time of Moses, when we consider the law in relation to strangers, we should really only consider how Moses himself had used these terms wherever they appear in the law. It is unfair to take the use of a term by Ezra or Nehemiah and force such an application on Moses, who wrote nearly a thousand years earlier. And with this perspective, Clifton Emmeheiser mentioned in one of his papers that after the children of Israel were put off by Yahweh in the Assyrian and Babylonian captivities, even they were considered strangers because they were estranged from God, which is fully evident in places in the prophets, such as in Isaiah chapter 56. It's fully evident in the epistles of Paul, who talks about how the children of Israel had been alienated, who writes to the children of Israel, the dispersed children of Israel, addressed in his epistles that they had been alienated, but are now being reconciled. In reference to strangers under the law, in Watchman's teaching letter number 145, in May of 2010, Clifton Amaheiser had written that probably the best passage to cross-reference to understand the Hebrew word for adultery which is Strong's number 5003, or Naoth, would be Proverbs chapter 5, verse 20, where it says, And why will thou, my son, be ravished with a strange woman? And that word strange is the Hebrew word for stranger, which is zuer. And embrace the bosom of a stranger. And that word is the Hebrew word nakri. Clifton says both of these Hebrew words for the definition of strange have connotations of a non-Adamic race, someone of a non-Adamic race. The King James Version has correctly rendered Nakri as alien, foreigner, or outlandish in other places. So the command to not commit adultery can only mean not to have sexual relations with another race. 
And we repeated this paragraph from Clifton's writings to point out what he pointed out about strangers. And the topic of adultery is another lengthy topic entirely. But Clifton's point can also be fully proven in that aspect. Then in Watchman's teaching letter number 146, in June of 2010, Clifton wrote that there are several Hebrew words translated as stranger in the Old Testament, which have various meanings. In some cases... Israelites were to show compassion, and at other times, we were to avoid them at all cost as being unclean to us, as Paul had warned the Corinthians to come out from among them and touch not the unclean. The Strong's numbers in the Hebrew for strangers, and Clifton has an entire list here. Now, some of them don't really belong on this list, but Clifton included them because they were translated as stranger in one place or another in the King James Version. (coughs) And his list includes the word Ben, Strong's number 1121, which is literally a son, and does not really belong in this list, except that sometimes it is rendered son of a stranger in the King James Version. And then there's the word at 1482, which is gore, which is a whelp or a young one, and probably does not belong here either, except for certain odd King James Version translations. And then there is the word found at 1616, which is gare, which Strong's attests is a, is a stranger, but is properly a guest. Then there's the word at 2114, which is zuer, or foreigner. It's an alien or a foreigner, so it's a stranger in that sense. Then there's the word 4133, magor, and 4038, magal, which is kindred or offspring. Magor is a stranger, but magal is kindred or offspring, and that does not really belong here either except that sometimes it was used to refer to foreign offspring. Then there's three other words, Neker, Nekar, and Nakri, Strong's numbers 5235, 6, and 7. A Neker is a foreigner, and that's a noun. Nekar is foreign or strange, and that's an adjective. And Nakri is foreign or strange, and it's also an adjective. And finally, there's the word at 8453, Toshab, which is really a sojourner. And it's a stranger in that sense, but a sojourner is simply someone passing through, traveling in, temporarily residing in another land. And what word for stranger would define any particular sojourner depends on the nature and character of the sojourner. If that sojourner is someone with a country of what which has the expectation of hospitality, perhaps somebody from the tribe of Ephraim who's visiting 
the land of the tribe of Judah, for instance, in ancient times, a member of the tribe of Ephraim would have an expectation of hospitality in Judah. An Aramean or Syrian would have an expectation of hospitality in Judah. They would be a gare stranger, but could be described as a sojourner, where someone who is an absolute foreigner, such as a Hittite, or one of the Rephaim, shouldn't be a gare. They're one of the cursed people that Yahweh told the children of Israel to exterminate. How could they be a guest with an expectation of hospitality? They would have to be a Nakri or a Necker. Or, or nigger, that's where the word comes from. I'm convinced that our word nigger actually came from Hebrew through Latin, was used to describe as black, and and evolved from that Hebrew word. That's my opinion. Of course, I can't prove it, because it's hard to trace language in ancient times. But the similarity cannot escape us, because it can be proven that many other Hebrew words found their way into Latin. So, Egypt, continuing with Clifton. I'm sorry. The stranger, continuing with Clifton, the stranger at Exodus 22, verse 21, is Strong's number 1616, Gare, and is defined as a guest, a guest by implication. Egypt appears to have been, by and large, peopled by the descendants of Ham. However, the city of On, from where Joseph received his wife, was also called Beth Shemesh. Now, Clifton has formerly, and, and that's not quite true. On was called Beth Shemesh by the Hebrews, while it was called On by the Egyptians. And Beth Shemesh may mean house of the people of Shem. I know that when you look up your the word son in your Strong's Concordance, one of the words translated as son is Shemesh, and Shemesh can mean son, but Beth Shemesh can mean house of the sun, but the word linguistically, Shemish, can also mean people of Shem. But the descendants of Ham were also white Adamic people. Therefore, it is imperative when one encounters the term strangers to find out which strong number applies. That is, its meaning and its context. And the passage to which Clifton refers is Exodus chapter 22, verse 21, where it says, Thou shalt neither vex a stranger, nor oppress him, for ye were strangers in the land of Egypt. And of course, ye were strangers in the land of Egypt doesn't really refer to Egyptians. It refers to the Israelites. In the Hebrew of that passage, both instances of the word for stranger are from Ger, Strong's number 1616, which is a guest. Now, of course, the children of Israel were enslaved by the Egyptians, but they started out as guests who expected, who had an expectation of hospitality, and they received that hospitality for a while. In Watchman's Teaching Letter number 147, published in July of 2010, 
Clifton Emmerheiser wrote that while we are forbidden to revile or curse a true leader over us, and that is true, that's in the law, we are admonished at Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 15, that thou shalt in any wise set him a king over thee, whom Yahweh thy God shall choose. One from among thy brethren shalt thou set as king over thee. Thou mayest not set a stranger over thee, which is not thy brother. And the Hebrew word stranger in this verse is Strong's number 5273, Nakri, and is a stranger of the worst kind. There are several Hebrew words translated into the English as stranger, some in a good sense, and others have a very evil sense. And we have to be aware of the difference. This word, Nakri, is Strong's number 5237, and it is defined as strange in a variety of degrees and applications. Foreign, non-relative, meaning not related to the children of Israel, adulterous or different, and it is translated in the King James Version as foreigner, alien, outlandish, strange, or stranger, or woman, where it sometimes fails to indicate an alien woman. In Malachi chapter 4 verse 5, we read where the word of Yahweh says, and I will come near to you to judgment, and I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, and against the adulterers, and against false swearers, and against those that oppress the hireling in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, and that turn aside the stranger from his right, and fear not me, saith Yahweh of hosts. And the words from his right here were added to the text. And we will not comment on them here, although it will become manifest that the King James translators understood the meaning of the phrase in relation to the stranger in the passage. In part 5 of our commentary on the prophecy of Malachi, we wrote the following concerning that same passage. The Hebrew word for stranger is Geyer, Strong's number, 1616, which is a guest or a sojourner who has an expectation of hospitality. So the stranger is not necessarily one of a different race or an alien culture, but rather is one of one's own race and culture, who would have such an expectation of hospitality. In both Greek and Hebrew culture, it was a reproach for a man to mistreat such a stranger, or withhold kindness to such a sojourner. But in all of the passages of the Law of Moses, where it is perceived that strangers are given some expectation of kindness or even acceptance, the word for stranger is Strong's number 1616, which is Geir. But of a Nakri stranger, Clifton wrote in Watchman's Teaching Letter number 176 for December of 2012,
quoting Jeremiah chapter 2, where the word of Yahweh said, in verse 21, Yet I had planted thee a noble vine. And Clifton added in brackets the comment, racially pure. Holy, a right seed. And Clifton added in brackets the note, a note concerning racial seed. How then art thou turned into the degenerate plant of a strange vine unto me? And Clifton notes there in his text that degenerate refers to something which is race mixed. Because the word strange, Clifton notes, is the word nakri, alien, foreign, and non-relative, not being a relation. For thou for though thou wash thee with nitre, which Clifton notes is strong lie, and takes thee much soap, yet thine iniquity, which Clifton describes as mischievous miscegenation, the state of being race mixed, is marked before me. And Clifton notes that that word marked means indelibly inscribed, something which cannot be washed off. Thy iniquity is marked before me, saith Yahweh Elohim. The Hebrew word nakri, Strong's 5237, is strange or stranger in the very worst sense. Foreigner, non-relative, adulterous, different, used with regard to illicit sexual intercourse, as it was used of the prospect of having sex with a strange woman, a wanton woman, in the Proverbs. In Matthew chapter 27, in verse 6, the King James Version describes the potter's field bought with the ill-gotten 30 pieces of silver from Judas Iscariot as a burial place for strangers. where we have described it as a burial place for visitors in the Christogenian New Testament. When we encountered that passage, this is what we said concerning that word, visitor or stranger. In part 27 of our Matthew commentary, given here in September of 2011, there is a Greek word here, which in the Christogenian New Testament is translated visitor. That word is xenos. In the King James Version, it is always translated stranger. But the word does not refer to a stranger as an alien or someone of another race, as we in modern times may perceive it to mean. And where it is used as a prefix in English words such as xenophobia that indicate as much. There is another Greek word which refers to someone of another race. That is alogenes, Strong's number 241. That word is also used in scripture. It is someone of another race or a stranger, according to Liddell and Scott, and it appears only in Luke chapter 17 in the New Testament. But rather, a xenos, as opposed to an alogenes, a xenos is an outsider who has the expectation of hospitality by law or treaty. And in, to the Greeks, law can also refer to custom. 
Therefore, David Kovacs, a professional academic from Virginia, he's actually a professor of the classics, when he translated the writings of the tragic poet Euripides for the Loeb Classical Library at Harvard University, he translated this word xenos, which appears quite often in Euripides' writings, as guest friend. Guest dash friend. That's how David Kovacs, who's a, a modern academic, David Kovacs retranslated Euripides for the Harvard Loeb, Libra- Loeb Classical Library in the 1990s and the, the early years of the first decade of this century. And he has no religious axe to grind doing this. I don't even know what his religion is. He simply translated the Greek word xenos in the writings of Euripides as literally as he could, and he wrote, guest friend. Every time the word xenos appears in Euripides' writing, David Kovacs wrote, guest friend. Liddell and Scott define the word, at least primarily, in this manner, a guest friend, i.e., any citizen of a foreign state with whom one has a treaty of hospitality for oneself and one's heirs, (coughs) excuse me, (coughs) confirmed by mutual presence. And it could also refer to one of the parties bound by ties of hospitality, either the guest or the host, or to anyone entitled to hospitality, a stranger or a refugee. And refugee in that case would be someone fleeing from one of those foreign states which had an expectation of hospitality, seeking refuge. So in Matthew 27.9, we translated that term as visitor. As it has already been explained, the city being visited by multitudes of people from all over the empire and beyond, meaning Jerusalem, and with the laws of the Judeans requiring a quick burial for the dead, regardless of where they were from. It is evident that it would always be used for such a field. When millions of people converge on Jerusalem at the feast time, and it's a feast, someone's bound to drop dead, so that's why they use the potter's field. And these people visiting the temple in Jerusalem had an expectation of hospitality. That's the point I was making when I presented my commentary on Matthew chapter 27, verse 9. A gayer stranger, or in the New Testament, a xenos stranger, is a stranger who has an expectation, even a right, of hospitality in your land. But a nakri stranger, someone of another race, with whom there are no ties of kinship or fraternity, is an alien who should be despised and driven away as the ancient children of Israel put to flight the armies of the aliens.
That's basically all I have to say about strangers and sojourners. And I thought that I would append this talk tonight, and, and this is actually going to have a pretty long appendix, with a presentation of Ted R. Whelan's Gifts of Bibles to Nigeria, which brings us twice as much evil, as Clifton Emmerheiser put it, in his title of a pamphlet that he published in response to an exchange of letters made with Ted Wheeland by a friend, Tony Gagner, several years ago. I'm also going to append this presentation with my own response in a letter to Ted Wheeland, which I wrote in 2005 in response to that same letter and my own admonishment of Ted Wheeland. And Ted Wheeland never answered my letter. Clifton starts out quoting Ecclesiasticus in the Apocrypha. The book Ecclesiasticus is also known as Sophia Solomon, or the Wisdom of Solomon, the son of Sirach. This passage in Ecclesiasticus 12.5 reads, Do well unto him that is lowly, but give not to the ungodly. Hold back thy bread, and give it not unto him, lest he overmaster thee thereby, or else thou shalt receive twice as much evil for all the good thou shalt have done to him. And I'm sorry I'm confused. It's not the wisdom of Solomon. It's the wisdom of Sirach. It's simply the wisdom of Sirach. I'm confusing my apocryphal books. Ecclesiasticus is known as the wisdom of Sirach. S-I-R-A-C-H. Dwell unto him that is lowly, but give not to the ungodly. Hold back thy bread and give it not unto him, lest he overmaster thee thereby. For else... Thou shalt receive twice as much evil for all the good thou shalt have done unto him. And Clifton says it would be advisable to read the entire chapter, Ecclesiasticus chapter 12. It would also be advisable to check out the book of Ecclesiasticus, or Sirach as it is sometimes called. For the author leaves his signature, and his message is directed towards Israelites. The word ungodly can only be referring to non-Adamites, for the other races have no true God as we have. Clifton wrote this, I believe, in 2005, and and he says that in in the very next paragraph. I'm sorry. Sirach was actually written around the turn of the 3rd century B.C., Clifton says, all this was brought to the fore in July 2005, when Tony Gagne wrote Ted R. Wieland and took exception to one of Wieland's statements on an audio CD where Wieland said in part, and if you don't, Clifton quoting Wieland, and if you don't want to believe me on that, then you might want to possibly take the word of hundreds, and who knows how many more, maybe more than that, you might want to take the word of hundreds of black Nigerians and others. 
to whom this ministry, meaning Ted Whelan's ministry, has sent hundreds, if not thousands of dollars of free Bibles and tapes since its very inception. And I think Whelan's a liar. The Bibles and tapes were not free. They cost Whelan's supporters. That's who paid for them. Ted Whelan's supporters. Nothing's free. Only to niggers. And Ted Whelan perpetuated that idea. Clifton says, in a letter dated July 14, 2005, from Whelan to Tony Gagner, Whelan stated in part, It would be one thing, Tony, if I were neglecting the children and only ministering to non-Israelites. But you know that is not the case. If someone over in Africa wrote and requested a Bible from you, would you not send it to them? Hell no, I wouldn't. Probably not. But if you wouldn't, why wouldn't you? Wouldn't you like to have the rest of the world that we will inevitably have dealings with of some kind? Wouldn't you like to them living by the laws of Yahweh? And if not, why not? And of course, the law was never given to any other people but the children of Israel. Yahweh did that for a reason. Clifton says on that same audio CD, Wieland also stated in part, not that there are some exceptions that people can't from other races and have in the past join themselves to Yahweh and embrace the covenant. And Clifton says that this shows beyond all doubt that Wieland follows and promotes the unscriptural false doctrine of universalism. James Brueggemann, Clifton says, another universalist on his website in a statement of faith states in part, we believe that non-Israelite people of all races can come under the Israelite covenants through faith and obedience to the law. This is an idea that Eli James also had. And Brueggemann cites Exodus chapter 12, verses 48 and 49, and Isaiah chapter 56, verses 1 through 8, none of which come, none of which have anything to do with the other races. Clifton continues quoting Brueggemann, and Brueggemann says, We believe that salvation to everlasting life and heavenly bliss is available to people of all races, just as it is to Israel, citing John 3.16, imagine that, and 3.17, and Romans chapter 8, verses 19 and 21. Imagine that, Romans chapter 8 only has to do with Israelites and nobody else. Brueggemann claims he owes his belief on universalism to Stephen E. Jones, who is another false prophet and big-time liar. And here Clifton will explain why Jones is a liar. Anyone, meaning Jones, who would lie about a well-known Protestant hymn, The Solid Rock, and claim that Martin Luther of 95 Thesis fame had written it, when, in fact, Solid Rock was written by Edward Mote and William Bradbury, the composer, and Clifton offers documentation in the Evangelical Hymnal, published by the Board of Publication of the Evangelical Church, and copyrighted in 1921. 
anyone who does this is a cunning conniver for the song Solid Rock see page 150 of Clifton's book that he cites not only did Jones lie about the author but Jones added words that the author never wrote and he refers us to Jones's book The Babylonian Connection page 154 and Clifton says anyone who would lie about the author of a Christian hymn and falsify the lyrics would lie about almost anything and Stephen I'm sorry Clifton shouts out hello all you Stephen E. Jones advocates meaning that they should wake the hell up because Clifton has absolutely documented that the man purposely lied in his book and he says that to keep from going beyond the scope of this brochure or this essay I will return to Brueggemann's so-called statement of faith to make one example of his misinterpretation of Holy Writ Brueggemann cites Exodus chapter 12 verses 48 and 49 in support of his universal theory which reads and when a stranger shall sojourn with thee and will keep the Passover to Yahweh let all his males be circumcised and then let him come near and keep it and he shall be as one that is born in a land for no uncircumcised person shall eat thereof one law shall be to him that is home born and unto the stranger that sojourns among you Clifton says when one researches scripture one must always ask who, what, when, where, why and how of these six elements the when is very important the exodus is the history from when Israel left Egypt and were on their way toward the land of Canaan many in Israel identity are unaware that many of the houses of Zarajuda and Dan separated from the Israelites before the exodus it is only reasonable then that some of those who had left paid return visits to the main body of Israelites from time to time but were born in other places in my essay Irish and Scottish Genealogy I, some, I demonstrated how some of Zarajuda bypassed the captivity in Egypt and settled in the area of the Dardanelles and became known as Trojans from Troy some went up into Europe and others to Italy and others eventually migrated as far as Ireland Dan left Egypt in great numbers before Moses led the main body of the Israelites through the Red Sea, settling in the Peloponnesus and other parts of Greece. Evidently, Brueggemann is ignorant of the history of this from the Greek classics. Also, those from the tribe of Dan who left Egypt before the Exodus remained known as Danoi. The History of Greece by J.B. Burry spells it Danaoi and calls them cousins of the Egyptians but doesn't say which Egyptians now Josephus now Joseph I'm sorry got his wife Asenath from the priest of On but On was also known as Beth Shemesh the house of Shem and in Greek Heliopolis which means house of the sun or city of the sun so the term cousins is not out of order and he's citing Bertrand Compare's 14 lessons on the book of the Revelation 
lesson 5. And he says that, as for the passage, at Isaiah chapter 56, 1 through 8, which Brueggemann cites, and I'm sorry, I'm losing my place. Probably the train in the background is distracting me. I'll blame it on that. I addressed that in my brochure, The Lie of Universalism, Part 1. We simply cannot understand this passage unless we comprehend the idiomatic language of Isaiah. The eunuchs of Isaiah 56.4 are the then-divorced tribes of Israel, for their seed was cut off from the covenant, and I stated this in the above-named essay. And, of course, Isaiah chapter 56 only refers to dispersed Israelites as the eunuchs and the dry tree and even names Yahweh as the God who gathers the outcasts of Israel. We can't imagine that in Isaiah, if Yahweh God describes himself as he who gathers the outcasts of Israel, that he's trying to gather anybody else, because there's no explicit statement of that anywhere in Scripture. Clifton continues and says, Once we understand that the northern ten tribes had been divorced by the Almighty, along with most of Judah. They were cut off from the covenant and became estranged to him. We can then see that the tribes, being cut off from the covenant, became like a eunuch or a dry tree. For that period, Israel's seed had been cut off. So figuratively, the simile of a eunuch is appropriate. Upon understanding that Israel was the eunuch, there is no longer a conflict with Deuteronomy 23.1. This passage is not talking about bringing non-Israelites under the covenant, but quite the opposite. Once Yahshua died for our redemption, we were then bought back under the new covenant, which includes only the house of Israel and the house of Judah. And Clifton cites Jeremiah 31.31 and Hebrews 8.8 to make his case. And he's absolutely perfectly correct. Then we must also understand the use of the word stranger. Some may argue that the stranger at Isaiah 56, verses 3 and 6, is Strong's number 5236, which is Nakri, instead of 1616, which is Geir. When Israel was divorced, they became equivalent to non-Israelites until Yahshua purchased them back. In other words, they couldn't be gayer because in their divorced state, they had no expectation of hospitality from God. So they were as good as Nakri. The words are describing the children of Israel, not anybody else. Clifton says, Jameson, Fawcett and Brown's Commentary on page 738 of volume 3, describes the man at Isaiah 56.2 thus, the man, Hebrew Enosh, a man in humble life in contradistinction to the Hebrew word Ish, one of high rank. In this sense, the meaning of Enosh is very fitting, for Israel was humbled when she was punished. 
Many translators render man at Isaiah 56, 3 and 6 as alien or foreigner, implying that the man of Isaiah 56 is a combination of foreigner and Enosh, and foreigner doesn't necessarily always mean race. Again, Isaiah is simply using idiomatic language. And I would clean that up a bit. I I would say that the word Enosh is often highly misunderstood, even by identity Christians. Enosh does not mean a non-Adamite. There are many places in scripture, if you check the word man at Strong's Concordance, the word man, the word men, that the word Enosh is used to refer to the children of Adam. It is used to also refer to Israelites. Very clearly, Enosh is not always an antonym of Adam. There are times when Enosh is set in places in the Psalms and other writings in contradistinction to the word Adam where we can understand that it's referring to non-Adamites. But very often that word Enosh refers to Adamites and even Israelites in Scripture. The truth is that the word Enosh refers to the mortal man, where the word Adam refers to the entire spiritual being, body and spirit, which Yahweh refers which Yahweh created. The word Enosh is often used to describe the mortal aspect of man. Whether he be an Adamic man or not is immaterial. Clifton continues, and at Deuteronomy 28.44, we can see one kind of humbling that Israel received. And he quotes, He shall lend to thee, and thou shalt not lend to him, He shall be the head, and thou shalt be the tail. It should be obvious there is no room for the other races under Yahweh's covenants to Israel. It's a closed corporation. All this universalism by this unenlightened trio, meaning Ted Whelan, Stephen Jones, and James Brueggemann, is parallel to Jewish communism and Catholicism. And why would anyone want to associate with something like that? But let's not leave out Protestantism, for by and large, Protestantism is but warmed over Catholicism. So what it all boils down to, by Ted R. Whelan donating Bibles to black Nigerians, he is aiding and abetting the other races to bring us twice as much evil as his contribution, as if we didn't already have enough evil. Contrary to Whelan, His gifts of Bibles to Nigeria are in fact a form of neglect to our own Israelite brethren. Maybe instead of evangelist Ted R. Wieland, it should rather be comrade Ted R. Wieland. And maybe instead of mission to Israel, the name of his ministry, it should rather be mission to Nigeria. And Clifton continues by saying, I'm not saying all of this just to be funny, for all of this is very serious business. Today we see the Enosh, not the divorced Israelites as eunuchs, but the other races, streaming in and building up a political base to override our ruling power. Our Anglo-Saxon countries are simply being 
handed over to the non-Adamic Enosh. What will happen when we come to the threshold and they gain a majority rule over us? And Tedar Wheeland is helping the non-Adamic Enosh to gain that control by his Bible gifts to Nigeria. We are coming quickly to the critical point where the non-Adamic Enosh will take over. And it will be just like New Orleans and recently at Toledo, Ohio on October 2000, in October 2005. Not to mention France on a national scale. And Clifton is referring to a series of chimpouts, I gather, that occurred in, during those years. Have we already reached the point of no return? How soon are we going to have to stay up all night to prevent our homes or automobiles from being burned or our places of business? How soon are we going to see a mob of non-Adamic Enosh rushing down the street seeking the blood of our family? And Ted R. Whelan helps bring on this kind of evil with his Bible gifts to Nigeria. And, and I would say that that's because he presumes that Nigerians are people leading many other Adamic Israelites to presume that Nigerians are people. These blacks are not people. Clifton says, We have deliberately broken the command of Yahweh at Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 15. Thou shalt not in any... Thou shalt in any wise set him a king over thee whom Yahweh thy God shall choose. One from among thy brethren shall thou set king over thee. Thou mayest not set a stranger over thee, which is not thy brother. And he says, Today our people no longer care whether or not we have our own kind ruling over us. But even in some Israel identity advocate non-Adamites to be over us and even some in Israel identity advocate non-Adamites to be over us. I'm sorry. All of this has come about because of the universal interpretations of Scripture. Today, the illegal alien has more rights than the citizen, and the citizen's tax money is spent to sustain the alien. Little by little, we are being overthrown by strangers, while Ted R. Whelan by Nakri strangers while Ted Arwillen sends Bible gifts to Nigeria. Are we not under siege while our very words are being scrutinized because there are those seeking to find something for which to be offended? Our country is being devoured. Our productivity is being deliberately sabotaged as an excuse to move jobs to the third world. At the same time, our living standards are being deliberately lowered while foreigners are given our better jobs in preference to our own people through equal opportunity governmental programs. The wealth of the Israel countries is gradually being transferred to non-Israel lands to deliberately minimize and destroy the sons and daughters of Adam. That's the target. That's the agenda. And hardly anyone cares as Wieland keeps sending Bible gifts to non-Adamic Nigerians. The universalist interpretation of Scripture has made a fraud of Yahweh's teachings. We have been betrayed by our clergy. We have adopted the religions of the strangers who will destroy us. And we have been sold out to the devil or the Jew. 
Then under the subtitle, Daniel Makes Liars of All Universalists. Clifton says, to show you this, we will go to Daniel chapter 2, verses 43 through 45, which read, And whereas thou sawest iron mixed with miry clay, they shall mingle themselves with the seed of men, but they shall not cleave one to another, even as iron is not mixed with clay. And in the days of these kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed, and the kingdom shall not be left to other people, but it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. For as much as thou sawest that the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the brass, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God has made known to the king what shall come to pass hereafter, and the dream is certain, and the interpretation thereof sure. Daniel referring to Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. Clifton says, I underlined the key verse where it reads, And the kingdom shall not be left to other people, to illustrate that there is only one people to whom the kingdom will be left. To understand what people Daniel was prophesying about, let's take it step by step. The head of gold was the Babylonian Empire, of whom Nebuchadnezzar was king. The shoulders of silver represented the Medo-Persian Empire, which was conquered by Greece, and Greece in turn was typified by the hips of brass, which was conquered by Rome, symbolized by the iron. This is where most so-called prophecy experts stop, but we must go back to verse 43 where it says, Iron mixed with miry clay. The miry clay represents Rome's slave trade, of which almost every household in Rome had several who were of diverse races. After Rome got into financial trouble, Rome made them citizens in order to collect more taxes, whereupon many mixed marriages occurred, similar to what we see going on in all Israel countries today. Then in verse 45 we read, The stone was cut out of the mountain without hands and that it break in pieces the iron, etc. Anyone with the slightest knowledge of history knows that it was the German tribes that systematically broke down and destroyed both the western and finally the eastern branches of the Roman Empire. And in Israel identity today, we know that the German tribes were Israelites. It's amazing to me, meaning Clifton, that James Brueggemann calls his so-called ministry Stone Kingdom Ministries, and that Daniel said in verse 44, And the kingdom shall not be left to other people. Yet he does an about-face that endorses bringing all races into the kingdom. Now either the prophet Daniel is a liar, or James Brueggemann is a liar, along with his sidekick Stephen Jones and Ted Wheeland, plus about 90% of the so-called pastors in Israel identity, because that's how many of them are really universalists. Repeating again, verse 44, Daniel said, and the kingdom shall not be left to other people. What is there about these words of the prophet Daniel that they don't understand, and they proclaim just the opposite, and keep sending Bibles to blacks in Nigeria? Ted Wheeland, doesn't have one solid scripture to base his theory on. Yet I doubt if he will ever repent for contradicting Daniel because of his God syndrome. He's like the Pope. 
infallible. Clifton speaking of Wieland. And that's exactly how Wieland acts in social media. Clifton says, all these so-called pastors, identity or not, teaching origins universalism, saving even Satan, which they falsely dub the restitution of all things. Israel identity and holy writ has been made a farce. For anyone wanting more information on the book of Daniel, refer to Clifton's Watchman's Teaching Letters, Numbers 53-61, through 61, where he went into great detail on many things, like the illustration above of Daniel chapter 2, verses 43-45. through 45. But where is this stone kingdom that is to last forever, or never be destroyed? It's America, no thanks to Wieland, Canada, Britain, Ireland, Scotland, Germany, Denmark, Norway, Sweden, Belgium, Finland, France, Northern Italy, Iceland, the Netherlands, Lithuania, South Africa, Australia, New Zealand, perhaps portions of Greece and Spain, and any other Celto-Saxon country I may have missed. And I would have to add that there are indeed many descendants of Israelites and Japhethites alike in Eastern Europe, whom Clifton simply didn't really include, but we'll forgive him for that. Repeating himself, Clifton says, read the apocryphal Ecclesiasticus, chapter 12, verse 5, as we will receive twice the evil for donating our bread of life, or Bibles, to the non-Adamic Enosh, the mortal men, or the mortal hominids, I should say. I don't know that I would call them Enosh. They're just animals. (laughs) Beasts in man's clothing. Why is it that we always have to learn Yahweh's all-important, never-changing word the hard way, and that there are always those who, through vanity, twist the truth? And I believe Clifton's right. That's exactly what Ted Whelan does, and why he does it. When I read that paper from Clifton and the letter from Tony Gagner that he had originally written to Wheeland, I decided that I was going to take it in hand to write Wheeland from prison in 2005. Clifton published my letter and it appeared on the Israel elect IsraelElect.com website long before I got out of prison. I almost said escaped. Clifton says, The following is a reproduction of a handwritten letter I sent to Ted R. Wieland dated August 19, 2005 in support of Tony Gagner whose address will not be cited here. He gives Ted Wieland's address, of course. Tony had taken exception to some of Wieland's audio recordings where Wieland insists upon sharing Yahweh's promises to Israel with Yahweh's enemies. It is now mid-November and Wieland has not yet responded to my letter. And it begins, Sir, meaning Tedar Wieland. I have recently had the pleasure of reading an exchange of letters between yourself and one Tony Gagner, which consisted of letters from you dated July 14th and August 5th of 2005. 
And one from Tony to you, dated July 29th, 2005. While I have never met nor corresponded with Tony, at least at that time, I just saw him last week at Clifton's home, we have a common associate in Mr. Clifton Emmeheiser. Now, Mr. Wheeland, I have never before corresponded with you, but having been involved with Israel Identity for eight years now, I am quite familiar with your teachings and take this opportunity to express my feelings to you. First, I must say that you may wax philosophical, creating hair-splitting differences between the definitions of racialism and racism, and that may get you by in 87% white, 4% black Nebraska, but it certainly would not where I grew up in northeastern New Jersey, or where I am now in federal prison. The non-whites see no difference between the two, and neither will they. From their perspective, they see both as the same form of hatred, meaning racism and racialism. Ted Whelan may claim there's a distinction, but the niggers are never going to understand that. It's just ridiculous from their viewpoint. The non-whites will see no difference between the two, and neither will they. From their perspective, they see both as the same form of hatred. A non-acceptance of them as full equals in a borderless world. Your distinctions between the two words are, in effect, vanity. You are deceiving yourself. Mr. Wheeland, you profess that you would give Bibles to non-whites. Yet Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1.18 that the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. There is no promise anywhere of resurrection or eternal life to the other races, Mr. Wheeland, and they have not the spirit of Yahweh which makes that possible. Citing Romans 8.11 They have not the spirit of Yahweh which makes that possible in the first place. The promise of salvation or preservation in the Bible is only to Israel, evident in both Old Testament and New. So why would you be foolish to teach other races the Bible? The proof of the validity of the position is manifest in many places, but especially in Matthew chapter 25 verses 31 through 46, where it is explained that Yahshua Sal shall separate all nations, ethnos, nation, ethnicity, from each other as a shepherd divides sheep from goats. Only Israel are being identified in the Bible as sheep, in the New Testament as well as the Old Testament. Jeremiah chapter 50, Ezekiel chapter 34 are examples. There are other identifications of Israel as the sheep of Yahweh's pasture in the Psalms. And that leaves only one other category in which to place all other nations or races. And that category is goats. Now while the parable says that the sheep go on to eternal life, us which are saved, in 1 Corinthians 1.18, the goats go on to eternal punishment, them that perish, in 1 Corinthians 1.18. And so Paul would label you as a fool for preaching to them. Is this not 
clearly evident in these and other scriptures such as Matthew chapter 7 verse 6. Continuing with my letter to Ted Wheeland. Now you may scoff at me for what I am about to say, but I would challenge you to prove otherwise. Nowhere in the Bible can you point to and establish as fact that Yahweh created the non-white races. Rather, a study of prehistory and their own myths reveals that the non-white races are but a corruption of the original creation, along with the fallen angels of Revelation chapter 12, and all being mixed are themselves by fact of their existence, a violation of Yahweh's laws of kind after kind. All of the antediluvian Adamites and all of the Adamic Genesis 10 nations were originally white, a fact which can certainly be established. All of the Genesis 10 nations, except Israel and some other Adamites among us, were destroyed by mixing with the alien races voluntarily or not, and so their remnants are no longer white today. Jeremiah 31 forebodes the same thing, a mixing of the races, Adam and beast, which our Israelite race suffers everywhere at this very moment. All who accept it shall die, and such is the word of Yahweh. Yet we are promised that a remnant shall always survive. Israel was told to make no covenants or agreements with the other races, citing Isaiah chapter 8, Exodus chapter 34, Deuteronomy chapter 7, and Judges chapter 2. You would teach them scripture, something unheard of anywhere in the Bible. Yahweh is not their God, for Christ has no concord with Belial. Only Israel were prophesied to be his people and to obey and serve him, Old Testament and New. Your teachings, Mr. Wyland, contradict the word of Yahweh in many places. I strongly urge you to reconsider them. The parable of the sheep and the goats mentioned above. The parables of the marriage feast. The net, the mustard seed, the wheat and the tares, and others all have a clear racial message, often more evident among those who examine the Greek. These messages were spoken in parables for good reason, that the Edomites and other non-Israel races would not understand them. So why are you attempting to circumvent the word? Not without reason is it, is ri- is it written in Ecclesiasticus chapter 12, verses 5 and 6. Do well unto him that is lowly, but give not to the ungodly. Hold back thy bread, and give it not unto him, lest he overmaster thee thereby. For else thou shalt receive twice as much evil, for all the good that thou shalt have done unto him. For the Most High hates sinners, and will repay vengeance unto the ungodly, and keep them against the mighty day of their punishment. By sharing the bread of life, the word of Yahweh with the other races, they overmaster us by it. They force universalist interpretations through phrases such as whosoever and all men, phrases never meant for the other races, deceiving the sheep into unlawful communion and fornication, which is race mixing, citing Jude 7 and 1 Corinthians chapter 10. In reality, the word man should only be applied to the sons of Adam, citing Romans 5.14, 1 Corinthians 15. 22 through 45, and the wisdom of Sirach, chapter 40, verse 1. And the other races have no part 
in the biblical use of the term Adam. The proof that I'm citing demonstrates that the apostles considered man and Adam to be synonymous. Crumbs, Mr. Wheeland. Maybe this is where Eli got the idea for his 2011 paper. Crumbs, Mr. Wheeland, fall to the floor unintentionally. Crumbs are not purposefully distributed upon request. You purposely throw that which is holy to the dogs and cast pearls before swine every time you willingly share the word with a non-Adamite. Pontificate on this if you must, or call it what you will. But remember that Paul calls it foolishness. Did Yahweh tell Joshua's Israel to preach the law to the Canaanites and send them over the border? No, he told Israel to kill them all. Yet Israel failed and fell from grace for it. It is hearts like yours, Mr. Wyland, which would placate the other races, which have caused Israel to fail. You seek their peace. Yahweh says there is no peace for them, citing a plethora of passages. Christ himself would not placate nor seek the peace of the other races. Your teachings, Mr. Wieland, or Wyland, Wyland, Wieland, Weeningland, it don't matter. Your teachings, Mr. Wyland, are not biblical. You should instead follow his example and tell them, Depart from me, ye accursed. Matthew 25.41 I suggest the conclusion well, there's a couple of paragraphs left, I'm sorry. I suggest that you heed Tony Gagner and study Clifton Emmeheiser, for his doctrines are far more accurate and true to Scripture than your own. It is not Clifton who is hateful. Rather, those who reject the word of Yahweh and choose instead to embrace his enemies are those who are hateful. David was a man after Yahweh's own heart and hated Yahweh's enemies with a perfect hatred. Yahshua said, not in vain, Blessed are you when men hate you and when they separate from you and they reproach and they cast out your name as evil because of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for behold, your reward is great in heaven. And woe when all men speak well to you for in accordance with these same things did their fathers do to the false prophets. Mr. Wheeland, I exhort you, study the scripture again and consider these things. For you teach not the word of Yahweh, but the words of weak and incompetent men, sharing the word with all sorts of beasts and ungodly creatures. Mr. Wheeland, if I am wrong, I challenge you and I exhort you to exhibit why I am in error. Do not be as Dave Barley, Dan Gentry, and Stephen Jones, all of whom have left unanswered my letters to them over the past two years. I am not, as you intone, a disgruntled, hateful, mean-spirited, false-accusing, ineffective nincompoop. I don't even remember where or how Wheeland called me those things. False accusations surely are a serious matter, and neither does Clifton Emmeheiser meet the description with which you label him. I thought to say much more here, but what I have said should be sufficient to illustrate my purpose. I would like your answer concerning Matthew chapter 25 verses 31 through 46, and 1 Corinthians 1.18 especially. 
and closed, you will find a copy of a pamphlet I wrote recently entitled, Baptism in What? Can you find fault with that? I will send copies of this letter to Tony Ganyer and to Clifton Emmeheiser. I hope that you choose to continue this discourse. And I signed it, Ex Nihilo Nihil Fit, which means nothing comes from nothing. We'll never get anywhere if we don't do anything. And I wrote, P.S., from the American Heritage College Dictionary, 3rd edition, Racialism, a noun, chiefly British, a variation of racism. See? No difference. And I said those things because I took offense to Ted Whelan's claim that he's not a racist, but a racialist, because the other races will just laugh at that. They'll just laugh at that. They don't understand that distinction. That distinction makes no sense whatsoever. Clifton appended this letter when he published it, and it ended up on the Israel Elect website, and he said, Thank you, William Fink. I, Clifton, will now repeat excerpts from Whelan's two audio recordings. The first made sometime during the year 2002. And this is what Whelan said. Whelan said, But that doesn't mean that a non-Israelite cannot join himself to Yahweh and partake. And why wouldn't we want them to? Why wouldn't we want the nations around us to be serving our God and under his laws? So we could have commerce with those nations. Wow. You know, if you look back, and, and I have to comment on this. I didn't put this in my notes for this evening. But if you look back into the Minor Prophets, Amos, Hosea, Micah, you'll see one of the largest sins of the children of Israel. One of the significant things that the children of Israel were being punished for was because they were making agreements of commerce with the other nations, even the other Adamic nations. And Yahweh said they did not know that I gave them their oil and their wine and their corn. They were trying to trade with the other nations for oil, wine, and corn. Or giving away their oil, wine, and corn for things from the other nations. Yahweh condemned commerce with the other nations. And here, Ted Wieland encourages it. And that shows just how stupid and ignorant of scripture he really is. Just look up oil, wine, and corn in your concordance and you'll find the passages I refer to. It's very clear. We don't want commerce with non-white nations. It's evil. Ted Whelan continues, or Clifton continues to quote him, and he says, not only for my race, but for their race as well, meaning the commerce, I guess. And he says, I have come to appreciate the other races and their individuality more since understanding this identity message than before I understood it. He still doesn't understand it. He says, God created everything to be good. Well, yeah, God didn't create niggers. Have you ever noticed the media always says, we call the other races mud people? I have never in my life ever heard the term except in the media. So I guess Ted Wieland has had his head up his ass all the time he was in Christian identity. And he says, not amongst the people I preach to, 
So why wouldn't we want to embrace others into this message? If anything, we should be absolutely ashamed of ourselves because of our past reputation and our past history as a people and what we have squandered because of who we are. We should be ashamed of ourselves and our forefathers more than the rest of the races. They are wallowing in their sin because of our sin. Let's just face it. Wow, Ted Whelan is so ignorant, not only of scripture, but of the nature of the other races. I could pontificate on that forever, and I'll just let it slide by. I've already done it in my podcast. There's no way you can teach niggers the law. You can't teach niggers. They will take it, and they will kill you. Clifton said, Then again, Ted R. Wheeland on an audio CD labeled Mission to Israel entitled, You Might Be a Christian If, made a misnomer. Uh, I'm sorry. Made in the mid-summer of 2005 said, and you don't dare, and I don't think anyone would hear, I'm sure you wouldn't, but somebody who might hear on his tape, don't you dare interpret what I just said as racist and supremacist, because I assure you that one can be a separatist without being a racist, without being racist or supremacist. How do I know that? Because I'm a separatist and I denounce racists and supremacists. And if you don't want to believe me on that, then you might want to possibly take the word of hundreds, and who knows how many more, maybe more than that. You might want to take the word of hundreds of black Nigerians and others to whom this ministry has sent hundreds, if not thousands of dollars of free Bibles and tapes since its very inception. I'm not a separatist because I hate other races. I'm a separatist because I love Yahweh and his laws which require, which require that his people live separate segregated lives. Now, once again, there are going to be all kinds of objections. Someone is surely to encounter, to counter that this passage is addressing religious, not racial separation. To which I respond, not that there are some exceptions, that people can't, from other races, and have in the past, join themselves to Yahweh and embrace the covenant. And here it is obvious that Ted Wheeland is a dog who consistently returns to his own vomit. I have confronted him several times on Facebook in a manner which was not hostile, but nevertheless direct, and he has fled from me on every occasion, refusing to answer the most innocuous questions. Ted Wheeland is clearly a scatterer who would indeed gather thorns and call them grapes, or gather figs and call them thistles. I'm sorry, gather thistles and call them figs. In the Old Testament, there were people from kindred races, Egyptians, and Arameans or Syrians, for instance, the Geir or Zenos strangers, who were permitted to join themselves to the children of Israel under certain specific conditions. But the Nakri strangers, the foreigners of other races, the children of Israel were commanded to separate themselves from, and that command still stands today. As we may evidence from 2 Corinthians chapter 6, 1 Peter chapter 2, or Revelation chapter 2, if we refuse to understand the differences between strangers, we can accept strangers which we must reject. If we don't, 
we will find ourselves among the bastards and not among the sons. It's that simple. We have to understand that there are strangers worthy of our attention and there were strangers that must be rejected in the Old Testament. Today, the children of Israel and whatever of the surviving Genesis 10 nations that they have absorbed into their body politic in each of the modern Christian nations have no other strangers. We we can only accept strangers who are other white people. We have no other strangers of any other races which we can accept. In the old world, that wasn't as much of a an issue because you basically only had the Canaanites and the Israelites mentioned in Scripture. All of the tribes related to the Kenites, Rephaim, and Canaanites were accursed, and the other races really didn't come into the scope of Scripture at all, except in Isaiah chapter 43. It's the only explicit mention or I should say inference of other races of scripture, where Yahweh listed three nations that he gave up on behalf of the children of Israel. The Ethiopians, the Sabians, and the Egyptians. And if we look at the history of Ethiopia, Sheba, and Egypt, we can see that Yahweh gave them up to niggers that all those countries were overrun by blacks. That's who Yahweh gave them up to, to his enemies. The Negroes must be his enemies. They can't be his friends. You don't give your people up to to your friends. You give your people up to your enemies. You give things, people which you discard, as Yahweh discarded the Egyptians, Sabians, and Ethiopians, they were discarded to his enemies. They couldn't have been discarded to his friends. The blacks are not the friends of God. That thought is incredibly ridiculous. Ted Wheeland is a rodeo clown. He doesn't know anything about the scripture. He's a warmed-over, denominational Christian who has a good understanding of the migrations of the tribes of Israel, and it ends there. Other than that, he may as well just be a mainstream Judeo-Christian. That's the end of our presentation for this evening. These are some old documents which I thought would be good to reiterate tonight. And I pray that the effort was worthwhile. Praise Yahweh the God of Israel. And good night.